0: So, we are not in Romans. I'm jumping ship. We're going to go in Psalm 63, but before you go there, we're going to be looking at this particular psalm because it's really transformative. This is David. He's in the wilderness. And what the purpose of this psalm is, as I prayed, is, is, is the intention for, for me as I prayed and, and as I convey this message, is, is the goal is to either orientate you towards God or reorientate you back towards God. Maybe you're in a wilderness moment and you need that reorientation, or maybe you don't know Jesus and you need to be oriented to him. This is a beautiful passage of scripture that gives us some real clear pictures of of what that looks like and how we can flesh that out in our own lives. Before I was a Christian, my whole life was a wilderness experience. And some of you have heard my story. I had to run and hide from people. I was in and out in jail. I struggled with addiction. I had all kinds of issues. And even sometimes in my faith journey, there were moments when I had to like have this wilderness moment and, and, and I felt alone and I was isolated and I was fearful and I was afraid. And oftentimes I felt like I was running from my life. And before Jesus, there were times when I literally had to run from my life. And in this psalm, we're going to see a little bit of that Uh, King David was on the run, and he was in hiding. But his response in the psalm is not one of fear. It's not one of anxiety. It's not one of stress. It's actually one of connection. It's actually one of orientation to God, where he's able to say in his wilderness moment, despite all these external circumstances that come in, and they press on him, and they attempt to crush him, and they attempt to break him, he's able to find a way to connect with God. And to fill his soul, or have God fill his soul, even in the midst of the trials that he was experiencing, which, which were severe and extreme, and so we'll get to that. He recognized God for who he was in that moment, and he recognized God's care for him. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 63, verses 1 through 11. We're going to read the whole chapter. It says, Oh God, you are my God they shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And as I said earlier, David was on the run, and he was on the run from a guy named Absalom, and he's in the wilderness of Judah. If you're familiar with the story, then, then you then you you get what I'm saying. If you're not and you want to kind of catch up on the story, it's in Second Samuel, and it's in chapters 14 and 15. Now, I'm going to give you some context for this because this is going to help you understand where David is really at. Absalom is David's third son, and he's running from his own son, and he's trying to kill him. And the interesting thing is is Absalom, we're going to get to who he is a little bit more in a moment, but Absalom actually killed his half-brother Amnon. This is David's first son, and he did it because Amnon had raped their sister Tamar. So it seems like a justifiable act, but this kind of gives you a little bit of insight as to what kind of a guy Absalom was. And this is the second time that David has been on the run. The first time he was on the run from King Saul. So he knows what it's like to be in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to have to hide. The interesting thing is when he was running from Saul, Saul was trying to kill him because he was anointed as king and Saul wanted his his power. And in this case, Absalom, his son, was, was filled with, with pride, and, and, and David had been king for a while, and he wanted to go, and he wanted to take the throne from his father. I was thinking about this, and I'm reading this, and I just want to see how crazy is the Bible? Like, when you read these stories, and you go, this is like something out of a movie. This is ridiculous. Like, you, you know, the Hollywood doesn't do a very good job of, of doing Bible stories, but if you actually sit down, and you read through the stories in the Bible, you just, and, and you can immerse yourself in the story, you just go, This is crazy. Like for this to happen, for your own son to want to hunt you down and try and kill you and take your position, that's crazy. There's so many other stories from the beginning of scripture to the end that that we're going to touch on some of them where you're just like, that's unbelievable. Like I can't even wrap my head around that. And this is one of those stories. So it's like, have you seen Gladiator? So Commodus is is Caesar's son. This is one of my favorite movies and Commodus wants Caesar's throne. And so he, he, he realizes he's not going to get the throne. And what he does actually is he kills Caesar because Caesar was sick and in his bed and he's very weak and he puts a pillow over his face and he smothers him and he kills him. It's like that. That's what this scene is like. It's one of my favorite movies. And when I was pre- preparing, I was like, Oh, that reminds me of this scene out of this movie. It's, it's dark. It's, it's malicious and it's evil. So, how's this possible? David's king, right? He should be the guy that, that could tell his son, like, no, man, like, you have no power, you have no authority. You submit to me, not just as your king, but as your father. So, how does Absalom do this? So, the story goes Absalom, he, he comes back to. to uh, the kingdom, and, and he's, he's a very handsome man, Scripture says, and, and he even actually stands at the gate of the city, and, and people are coming, and they're coming from different parts of the region, and he greets them at the door, the gate of the city, and he basically says, oh, these people will come with a dispute, and I'll say, oh, if, oh, you have a dispute? oh man, if I were judge, if if the king would only make me judge, you you have a solid case here. I would decide in your favor justly. And so what he's doing is, one, he's using his looks. And two, he's persuading the people by, by seeming to be compassionate. How often do we do this as a people? How often do we look at someone's external beauty and put them on a pedestal that they don't actually need to be on? How often do we confuse uh, kindness, someone's kindness, when when they're trying to take advantage of us? It happens all the time. We're blinded by what we see physically. And in this psalm, David has a very clear picture of of how to get rid of the external and, and what holds him and what distracts him in order to connect with God. So he's running because Absalom found favor with the people. He had persuaded them, and so he ends up running for his life because Absalom now has the power of the people behind him. Absalom, he was a proud man, and he knew how to use the people to his benefit. And again, it says he, he was attractive in 2 Samuel 14 25. It says, in the whole land of Israel, there wasn't any man as, ha- as handsome as Absalom was. That's why everyone praised him. That's not what the passage says. I wrote that down. That's why everyone praised him, because he, he tricked them and manipulated them into following him. And he was attractive and the people were drawn to that that's why i praise steph she's attractive <laughs> he'd won the people so enough setup let's get to the the passage we're going to break it down in a few chunks and and look at how we can uh be in a wilderness place and be okay but let's pray god we thank you for your word we thank you that it's transformative we thank you that Uh, You dwell in the hearts of every believer through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that this morning we can dive into your word and see what it says and learn about how to be in a wilderness place uh, without being crushed by it, without being starved or parched by it, but being connected to you and being changed by you and being satisfied by you. May that be true for us this morning, for all of us, in Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 1 and 2 O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked up to you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. First, he fixes his gaze on God. He's not looking at his circumstances, he had every reason to be stressed. He had every reason to be anxious. He had every reason to be fearful and uncertain. And I imagine the enemy was there just whispering all of those things to him. But what he did was he fixed his gaze on God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. How often do we do this when we're in a, a, a desert place or in a storm or in a dry and weary place? Do we do we? Stay Get rid of all of the external and stop and just acknowledge God for who he is and take a deep breath and breathe in his grace and his mercy and his joy. I, I'm horrible at this. My circumstances crush me. They bury me. This, this studying this passage was, was deep ministry to my soul this week, and it was good for me. I pray that it's the same for you. So who knows what it's like to really be thirsty? Like sometimes we get sick and we get dehydrated and we end up in the hospital. But look at like a commercial you see from a third world country where children are starving and they're thirsty. We live in a first world context where where again, we have access to, to water at any given moment. It might not all be good for us, but it's all water that will hydrate us and in this case, David is paralleling his, his physical senses with his spiritual need. And he's acknowledging, so, so, so he's in the wilderness. He, he very well could be dehydrated. He very well could be starving. And he uses that physical sense to, to, to press into God and say, oh, my soul, it thirsts for you. My soul is dehydrated for you, God. Would you come and would you nourish my body? Would you nourish my soul? Would you fill me? Would you help me to not thirst, God? Can I press into you? May you pour out living water on me? He says, as in a dry and weary land. It's like this desolate place. Jesus does this. He says he's the bread of life in John 6. He gives us holy water, it says here, he gives us water, by the life, uh, water of life by his spirit in John 4. With the woman at the well in John 7, rivers of living water. He says in Matthew 5, those who hunger and thirst for spiritual food and drink shall be filled. It's like this beautiful parallel because we do all know what it's like to be thirsty or hungry to some degree. And so these analogies are very intentional because we get them because they're relatable. And so David picks up on this and he uses it to connect with God. He also remembers God's power and glory in this passage. That's helpful because with the power and glory being remembered, it, remembers, it helps him to remember that he's going to be okay. God's power and glory is superior over any and all of the circumstances that he finds himself in. They orient him to the truth. That's what this is about, orient, being oriented to God or reoriented to God. They orient him in a way that despite his circumstances, God's power and glory are still a reality. Jesus is the I am, not the I was. I read that and I thought, oh, how sweet is that? How often do we think of Jesus, maybe not directly or intentionally, as the I was? He's not. He's the I am. That's all encompassing. That's then, that's now, and that's into eternity. He is the great I am. He is never the I was. So I want to encourage you, just as much as I'm encouraging myself, that when you feel that moment, to remember, He is the I am and I am not alone. You know the story of Paul and Silas, and they're in prison and they're singing, and they're worshiping, and they're deep, deep, deep in the prison, and they have no cause to be worshiping for any reason whatsoever. They've been jailed unjustly. They've been beaten. They've been mocked. They've been shamed, and here they are in the middle of a prison, and they're singing songs to Jesus, and they're singing praises, and I ask myself, how? How do they do that? Why? Because they remember Jesus. They remember his teaching, They remember his saving power. They remember he is the I am, not the I was. They orientate themselves to God, even though they're in prison. Peter, walking on water, he steps out of the boat. Jesus says, Peter, come out of the boat. And Peter's looking at Jesus right in his eyes, and he he takes that step of faith, and he's walking on water, and he looks away from Jesus, and he starts to sink. He takes his eyes off of the satisfying King Jesus and he starts to look at the wind and the waves and his circumstances and he begins to sink. And he says, he looks back up at Jesus and he says, Lord, help me. And he remembers Jesus's saving power and Jesus comes and he rescues him. And then Jesus calming the storm. We talked about this in pre-service prayer. All the, the disciples are in the boat and they're freaking out and there's this gnarly storm and Jesus is asleep. Why? Because he knew peace in his soul because of his heavenly father. And what do the disciples do? They run to Jesus and they say, don't you care? And they look to the source of sustainment. They look to the source of correction. They orientate themselves to the truth. And they say, Jesus, don't you care? Save us. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and the storms calm down. But it took them taking their eyes off of their circumstances and looking to the source of life looking to the sustainer, looking to the supplier of living water. I know for myself when I truly take the time to recall, and I stop and I think and I really try to saturate myself in in the things of God and in the things that he's done in my life, everything else just kind of melts away. My circumstances seem so small. And in this case, when I compare, comparison isn't ever good, but when I compare my circumstances to David's, I don't have any issues at all. Abby's not trying to kill me. Thank God. (laughs) She might want to at some point, but not today. (laughs) I don't think that's something I have to worry about. I'm not literally physically starving or literally physically thirsty. I, I am blessed. I am blessed beyond measure. So when I stop and I recall the kindness and the goodness of God, everything else just kind of melts and it kind of fades away. It changes my attitude. It fills me with peace. It fills me with joy. It fills me with the ability to continue to endure whatever that circumstance is. It doesn't feel as heavy or as crushing. It makes me grateful. Even in the midst of my circumstance, I find myself being grateful. It's satisfying to my soul. This might sound cheesy, but I want to ask you guys for a moment to just close your eyes. And if you're a believer here, this, this, I'm hoping this will help you. I want you to just close your eyes for just a second and think about some of the things that you know to be true about God and some of the things that God has done in your life that have been a blessing to you. Can we do that for just a moment? Isn't that satisfying to your heart? Doesn't it bring peace to your soul? I know there are a lot of you in this room that, are fi- that have found yourself in a desolate place where you feel parched and you feel hungry. And my encouragement to you is to close your eyes and think on the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God that snuffs out all of those things and trumps all of those things and can in any moment. Verses 3-5 through five say, because, of your stead- because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The reference to fat and rich food he's making is like the, the delicacies that, that he was able to endure while he was in the kingdom. And, and so these are like fine, fine foods. It's like a filet mignon from a really expensive restaurant that you eat, and you're just like, that was so good. I could eat a whole other steak. He's using that as the analogy to the satisfying of his soul. One one commentator says this about his steadfast love is better than life. He said, life is dear, but God's love is dearer. What David is saying is, I acknowledge you and connect with you in a way that makes my life unimportant. Connecting with you and being close to you and being okay and covered by you is better than my my life. Being close to you and connected to you is better than my own life, my own physical life. Your steadfast love is better. It sustains, it saves, it rescues, it satisfies like, like comfort food. It's like, for me, it's like chicken pot pie or grilled cheese and tomato soup. Like what's your comfort food? That's what God wants to be to you. And you can pray in a way that says, God, come and be my comfort food. Come and fill my soul with comfort food, your comfort food, holy comfort food, that, that leaves me full and satisfied. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If that's not satisfying for our souls as Christians— I don't know what is we will run to the outer ends of the earth to find things to satisfy us, but God gave his only son to satisfy our hearts and our souls. And we take that for granted. We do, I do. So David runs and he finds a way to connect with God and God fills his soul. Just like we're talking about And his response. His response is praise, and it's a right response. He sings, and he blesses God, and he lifts his hands. In Samuel 2.15, it says he flees, but he has an entourage with him. I found this interesting, because in that passage, he says, my lips will praise you, so it's an indication of audible praise. So let's, let's say, for instance, he's in a cave, and he's hiding, and he's audibly praising God, and he's audibly saying these things, God, Be like the fat and the rich food to my soul. And his guys are undoubtedly around him and they hear him. And I imagine some of these guys are like, he's lost his mind. And some guys are actually like, oh, I admire that. Oh, I want to get into David's headspace. I want to be where David is because he's able to connect with God that removes the anxiety and the stress and, 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 the, and the fear, all the things that he must have been experiencing, I want to do that. I want to connect. I want to worship with David. He has a right perspective. He is, he is oriented correctly to God. And then there are the others who are like, huh, not uh, David, what are you doing? We're on the run. Why are you praising God? Don't you think he would have saved us or protected us? Here we are. We had to leave with you. Some guys are probably saying, I don't know how much longer I'm going to stick around. And I'm speculating. But I imagine that all of these things were probably taking places in, in his crew's hands, in his crew's minds. Uh, I'm out of here. This guy's lost his mind. Or, or oh, he has, he has a right, healthy perspective of who God is, and I want that. We have opportunities as believers to be the display of a right and healthy perspective of God and other people's lives that we encounter. And sometimes that requires audible Praise. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. You know what you know what matters? What he thinks. What God thinks. And David knew this. He didn't care. He was willing to give everything to connect with God in any circumstance. He uses that physical sense that physical sense again. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. There's a natural progression here in verse 1. First, David thirsts for the Lord. How does he quench his thirst? Verse 2, by remembering what happens. And when he remembers, verse 3 and 4, he recalls God's glory and power and steadfast love. And what does that cause him to do? It causes him to praise. He lifts up his hands and he worships. And then what? In verse 5, he's moved from thirst to a full and satisfied soul. Let's look at verses 6 and 8. When I remember you up on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So here we find David again remembering on his bed during the watches of the night. The watches of the night take place four times. 6, 9, 12, no, I'm sorry, 9, 12, 3, and 6 a.m. So we don't know if David was awake at each one of those moments, but when he was awake and he found himself in these moments, he chose to connect with God in the ways that are described in the earlier passages. I know when I wake up at—sometimes I go to bed at 8 and I wake up at (laughs) 9. when you go to bed at 8, it's a glorious thing. At least I think so. But when, when I go to bed and I wake up in the middle of the night, and we'll call it the watches of the night, I wake up at the watches of the night, I'm not connecting with God. 90 times out of 100, I'm not connecting with God. I am stressed out. I'm thinking about the day before. I'm thinking about what I have to do tomorrow. I'm thinking about where I gotta drive. I'm thinking about bills that need to be paid. I'm thinking about an argument that I had. I'm thinking about church stuff. I'm thinking about everything else but God. And if I am thinking about God, what's my prayer? Lord. Can you please just put me back to sleep? I'm tired. And I'm going to be really tired in the morning if you don't put me to sleep. Can you please do this? It's a prayer of desperation. It's selfish. It's not one where I'm like, Oh God, you are the author and perfecter of my life. It's Lord, if you love me, you will put me to sleep. (laughs) And I'm trying to twist your hand here. I realize that, but I'm your son, right? So put me to sleep, Lord. That's my prayer. Oftentimes, When we find ourselves awake in the middle of the night, if you can identify the things that you're thinking about, it will tell you where you're at. Where's your heart? I just described to you where my heart is at more often than not, and it's not in connection with God. And as your pastor, that's hard to say, but it's true. I have trouble connecting with God. I have to fight to connect with God. This world, it's hard. And it will beat you down if you let it. This season of our lives, mine and Steph's, has been a wilderness season. And it has been hard. And we have taken a lot of blows. And this passage and this opportunity to share this message with you guys is timely for me. And timely for my heart. And timely from my soul because it has taught me that I can connect with God, regardless of where I find myself, or how hard things have been. And I'm grateful for that. Looking back at verse one, the word earnestly can literally be translated as early. And other passages, other, other translations of the Bible do say, early I awaken and I, and I praise you. In this one, it says earnestly, so it can be translated as early. So here we find David basically morning, noon, and night pressing in to God, trying to connect with God, seeking to be satisfied in his soul by God pretty much all day and all night long. His heart's desire was for God to come and satisfy his soul, and he had every need for that. Instead of stressing out about his circumstances, He meditates. This is a really interesting word. This is something that we are not good at in our culture, It's meditating. Meditating is way different than just throwing up some lofty prayer to God and hoping that he grabs a hold of it and he answers it. This is intentional, it's deliberate, it's focused, and it takes discipline. And it's also something that I am very awful at. And it takes like, like it's like you close your eyes And you shut your door. My friend had a prayer closet and it was literally in his closet. And he said, I I go in there for an hour every morning and I shut the door and he literally would lay down. He said, and I lay down on my face. And I said, what? And he said, I literally lay down on, on face down and it's quiet and I can hear God and I can speak to God and God speaks to me. And that's meditation. You close your eyes and you shut the world out everything that's going on around you, you shut your world, the world out and you say, God, won't you come? And won't you satisfy my thirst with your living water? Won't you satisfy my soul with the fat and the rich food, with the comfort food of heaven? And may I shut out any distraction. And again, it takes practice. It takes discipline. It's super hard. There are so many things vying for your attention. The TV show that you missed. Got to go to work in an hour. Got to get the kids to bed. Got to make lunch. Got to get dinner. Got to go have a meeting. It seems impossible to stop and to stop your mind, stop your thoughts, and meditate. But this is this is a key, in my opinion, to this passage is to meditate on the things of God. That's why David. I think this is the key. Is, that's why David, in his circumstances, bleak and as, as grim as it seemed, was able to be okay. Is because he knew how to meditate. I need to learn how. We need to learn how. If we're going to do well in our faith and in this culture, we need to set the time aside and learn how to connect with God. And it requires medication, med- not medication, <laughs> meditation. <laughs> yeah. It's not in my notes. (laughs) Meditation. That was like a Freudian slip. That was amazing. (laughs) He acknowledges God's covering over himself, and he knows he's protected because he remembers. We're protected, but we don't really act like it. This doesn't mean we're exempt from trials and temptations or stresses or anxieties. It just teaches us how to combat those. It's not live in that place. We are going to experience those things, and we are going to have to fight those things. And this beautiful passage of scripture helps us orientate our hearts or reorientate our hearts back to the King of Kings, back to the Lord of Lords, back to the power and glory, back to the truth of who Jesus is, back to the fact that we've been saved from a death that we deserved. And this helps us. This satisfies our soul. It really does. This word does not return void. It is a bringer of peace. It is a bringer of unity. It is a bringer of joy. It is a bringer of salvation. It is a bringer of refinement. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Here's the thing, we have an enemy, Satan. He's real, he's a jerk, and he's gonna lead us push us sometimes into the wilderness place. Sometimes we will go there on our own and we don't need any help. Sometimes it's Satan and us and he pushes and we go by our own will. Sometimes it's God and he leads us into a wilderness place because he wants to teach us something. He did this with Jesus, with Jesus. And how did Jesus combat Satan when he was in the wilderness? He had an intimate relationship with his father. He was the Word that became flesh, so he knew how to speak truth into the lies. So he combated by speaking the truth and having a close relationship with his Father. At least to verse eight, where David says he David says his soul clings to God, and that it's, and, and and that he is upheld by Him. So the psalm goes full circle from need and dependence to remembering to worship, back to remembering, back to worship, and ending with David's need and dependence. It's this big, beautiful loop. So David recognizes his need and dependence, does this whole big circle, and it lands back in need and dependence. He recognizes that he needs to continue to connect with God and be dependent on God in order for his soul to continue to be filled and satisfied. It's like when Abby gets a hold of me sometimes. You guys have little kids or even Jordan. Jordan will grab a hold of me sometimes. Abby's way easier because she's six. When Jordan gets a hold of me and she holds on to me, it's almost overwhelming a little bit. And I'm like, I can't move. You're a woman now. When you were six, it was real easy to like navigate this. The wonderful thing about Jesus is when you cling to Jesus, he's never overwhelmed. He can never not handle it. He wants you to cling to him. That's his desire for us, is to cling to him and be close to him. May we be like our children and like David. May we cling to Jesus with everything that we have. So now we have a change in gears. The beginning of this passage, verses 1 through 8, are like all about David connecting with God and worshiping and praising. And then there's this break in the text, and we start in verse 9, and and it goes from like this praise to like, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Like, he was just worshiping and praising, and now he's like speaking death over his enemies commentators believe that he's prophesying about his future about the future of his of his enemies. And it seems a bit weird, but scripture's clear to David, a man who doesn't believe in God is an enemy of God. So he takes great confidence in that and even rejoices knowing that God will deal with his enemies. So his his heart posture and his perspective is still right and true. And he sees his circumstances in this moment and he prays a truth. He speaks a truth. These men are an enemy of God. So will you deal with them? Not even will you. I know you will. They're going to die by the sword. May they be a portion for jackals. It's not wrong. Someone who doesn't believe in God is essentially an enemy of God. And if you're here and you don't know God, I, I, can't, I, I can't beat around the bush on that. It's, it's a reality. But the good news is you don't have to remain an enemy of God. Jesus came and died so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could be in a right relationship with God. You don't have to remain an enemy. We don't want you to remain an enemy. We want you to be adopted into God's family and call you brother and call you sister. God will deal with his enemy. So what are the takeaways we can rejoice because we have Jesus no matter where we find ourselves. It just takes practice. And it sounds kind of silly, but it's very true. It's very practical. Get into your word. And listen, this isn't, this isn't a self-help message. This is a message about connecting with the creator of all things. This is a message about having a right perspective and it takes you out of the circumstances that you find yourself in. So it, it, it will help you. It will help you. It will, but it does, it takes practice. So, my first takeaway, and I didn't give these to the guys because I forgot, (laughs) is we acknowledge our need. Verse one, my soul and my flesh are thirsty and in need of you. Acknowledgement number two, we remember, verse two, I look upon you in the sanctuary in power and in glory. He's not in a sanctuary, he's in a desert. And what he's doing is he's remembering being in the sanctuary where he worshiped God and he he saw his power and glory and he sought his power and glory. So he's remembering, God, I remember you in the sanctuary and I remember your power and your glory. You're not the great I was. You're the great I am. So that's present here now. Even though I'm not in the sanctuary, that is a reality for me. Your power and your glory are still a reality for me and I remember. Takeaway number three, worship and be filled. Be filled. Because your steadfast love is better than life, I will praise. I will lift my hands. I want to say that Jesus is our peace. He's our living water. He's our fat and rich food. We can take great comforting in his rescuing power that defeated sin and death on the cross. Regardless of where we find ourselves, I'm confident that if we follow David's example, we too can have wild circumstances, but be filled and be full. And I've said it multiple times, and it seems so important to me, and I hope that you get the importance as well. Jesus is not the I was. He is the I am. Let's pray.